everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. After a year-long hiatus, we're coming back, coming back strong with Avi Friedman. He's the founder and CEO of Kentic, which is a San Francisco SaaS startup that provides network monitoring tools. Hi, Avi. Thank you so much for taking the time. Hi, Eugenie. Thank you very much. I uh, read everything on DCK, and I'm thrilled to be uh, a guest and chat about what's going on in the uh, data center networking world. Thank you for reading it. So, Avi, you're a self-described former internet plumber. Um, <laughs> you, also, <laughs> you, uh, you also do a lot of podcasts. You enjoy this medium. Do you consume a lot of them? You know, I consume transcripts. I read much faster, you know, than I listen. So, um, but there are some uh, podcasts that I listen to also. I just not spending a lot of time driving and it's been a busy year, uh, surprisingly busier, you know, than uh, even last year. So uh, don't listen to uh, uh, as many as I do read. Mm -hmm. um, Avi can be frequently seen on Poker Night in America on CBS Sports. Uh, he did before, uh, before the pandemic. Um, he was wearing his blue Kentic polo shirt, gray Kentic baseball hat. Uh, so, Avi, is, is poker your plan B if the whole startup thing doesn't work out? Uh, poker is an interesting distraction. Uh, it's some, I find it's useful to put your brain in another mode and um, you know be learning and thinking and observing. Um, there's also some good business lessons. Uh, in poker. And yeah, I, I, I was in the World Series of Poker wearing a Kampf tea hat. So people were like, Kampf? What is that thing? Um, uh, so I try to represent networking and of course now Kentic uh, when I go out in the world. Uh, uh, haven't made any interesting customer connections at the poker table, but uh, definitely some uh, good diversion and it, you can make some money too as well. So, What sort of things have you learned uh, about business from poker? Well, it's interesting um, because in uh, in business, you never really have all the information that you need to sort of maximize, but you can study and keep repeating and learn. And in poker table, it's very similar. Um, you're operating with incomplete information. And also sometimes, uh, as you saw, um, the hand that was on Twitter, sometimes you just get very lucky and uh, you don't want to confuse that with repetitive success. So the two concepts of expected value, which is, is this thing generally going to be successful? And then variance, which is, is short term, is luck really playing? Um, there's a lot of parallels uh, and you also have to be really self-aware. Um, you know, earlier in, your, in our careers, we just do things because we're interested in them. Uh, you know, and when you're running business, uh, you need to be a little bit more thoughtful and say, is this is this good result the result of good planning and, and strategy and execution, or did we just get lucky, which is absolutely allowed, and in poker, of course, you know, encouraged just as it is in business. So, so don't mistake luck for uh, exactly for just you, for exactly. Just you being great. Yeah, and, and, you know, I've bootstrapped companies before where it's my company, I get to do what I want, and if I want to go write code or build product or, you know, you can do that. Uh, but but in larger business, you know, when I was at AboveNet Nakamai or at Kentech, you sign up from the beginning to say, anytime we can think of ways to do 1% or 2% better, uh, we want to be thinking and challenging ourselves to do that. And poker is very much like that. If you If you play the same game for 20 years, you're going to be stale. So it's uh, it's helpful sometimes to go into another medium and see the same lessons and try to bring them back to, you know, the core thing uh, that I do. Mm -hmm. And one interesting thing from your biography is uh, you started the first ISP in Philadelphia, which is you were born and raised there, right? In Philly. Yeah. Um, uh, tell us about that first ISP. It was in your in your own apartment. Uh, yeah, it was in the basement. It was 215664-UNIX was the uh, dial-in number. And um, I always wanted to run a multi-line BBS. I got into computers in the... I was really fortunate. Um, I was eight at the time in 1978. So it was a little bit early for eight-year-olds to be getting in. But um, very fortunate. My father had a wizard working with him who, who had worked at Bell Labs and got me into Unix and C. Wanted to do multi-line BBS, couldn't. But I administered lots of suns and did multi-user dungeon games and online Unix machines at Temple University. And when I was getting ready to leave school, there was no way to buy dial-up access. 
And so I was like, what is this least line thing? What is this internet? I mean, I knew what the internet was, but I had to, you know, how do you actually, what is it? How do you get connected? And um, so I decided to start the first internet provider. For a while, if I didn't want to sell to you, you couldn't get internet access. You had to, you know, be a member of a school in Philadelphia. Um, and I thought, how hard could it be? I'll just hook up some modems. Uh, it was a lot harder than that. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I had worked in some businesses and thought I knew what was going on, but it was a good education. And that was how I fell into internetworking. What did that setup look like? What sort of equipment? Did um, you well, so I was at first I was like, oh, I buy and sell Sun workstations. Let me put some serial port cards in. Uh, SunOS and serial port cards were not as reliable as one, you know, needed. Um, so the setup was, um, actually I'll send you a picture of it, or if you go to my homepage, there's a uh, gentleman standing in front of, um, of the basement where it grew into. Um, so you can see basically SunOS, Sun blade servers, like sparks on their side, uh, and stuff like that. Um, so originally it was just some modems, uh, Sun 4, 110 with a card, and then eventually it became a cluster, um, uh, all running hot on a 10 megabit um, hub <laughs> until that sort of broke. Uh, you know, NFS-mounted shell accounts uh, had a BBS that looked like, uh, that was a Unix program that looked like a BBS. So uh, when we started, it was actually Gopher, email, Usenet, IRC, uh, because www was not really very usable and then in 94 of course mosaic um trumpet windsock and all that and uh but in 92 the internet was you know shell uh not uh who thought everyone would want ip addresses at their home only you know that was a company needs ip addresses at their right. home so the world has come a long way uh since then sometimes i still i haven't been to the data center since february um but uh i remember last year we, we have this old, we have a CEO cabinet, and I actually have a, a Catalyst, a Super 723BXL Catalyst, and I had, like, for some reason, I still had a 48 by 100 megabit card in there for out of band. And I looked at that, and I'm like, oh, that's a T1 card, that's not useful. And I was like, wait, no, actually, it's a lot faster than T1s, but, you know, that's how old I am. I was like, oh, it's the slow, useless card. Um, you know, and now 10 gig is becoming the slow useless thing. So it's uh, pretty fun. Avi was a key architect uh, behind Akamai's network. Um, and when I spoke to Jonathan Selig, one of Akamai's founders, <laughs> he, he said, he said, once, once I hired Avi and started working with him, I realized I'm not needed anymore. Or like this guy is so much better at what he does. Um, he, he needs to do my job basically. <laughs> well, so, Tell us about that. What what were you tasked with doing at Akamai? What was your role? So I was um, running AboveNet. I had sold my ISP. I was running AboveNet. And I was really frustrated with the state of networking in the late 90s. The fiber sucked. The, it never, the fiber wasn't where people said it was. You'd have outages and, you know, the routers, vendors sucked. Um, you know, just the internet we didn't have enough capacity for what was happening. And I, I, I have a computer science background. And so I went and I saw a talk at Nanog from Peter Danzig. And they talked about, I call them magic packet transporters. That's what I call the CDNs. Because to, to, to network people, these packets show up. It doesn't, they don't listen to VGP. You know, it's all this overlay stuff. Um, and Peter Danzig was talking about how, um, Akamai could map, which is how they figure out where to send a user, what server and network to send a user to, um, intelligently. And I thought, well, that's cool. And then, um, and actually even look at sort of a random mapping of a little bit of traffic and CICD their mapping code to say, are we getting better or worse than random? And I was like, wow, I would love to be, that, that's really cool. You know, if there's a problem with a router here, you can avoid it. You know, it's sort of routing up in software. Um, I thought that was really cool. So I reached out. I asked him afterwards. And he said, "Oh no, no, we're about to go public." And and I said, "No, I'm I'm really interested." So I, I met them, joined. I was going to be leading a group called Network Architecture in the engineering group because I thought, well, let's look at BGP churn because that's a predictor of performance. Let's do, you know, sort of more sciencey things. Um, and then yeah, after I started, Jonathan 
by the way, Jonathan set up this group and in six months got to a thousand networks. So, and the structure of that group is almost the same as it is today, 22 years later, um, where another Friedman, my brother, has my old job running that group. Um, so Noam, my brother, runs that group now. It's, I think, five or 600 people. Um, and uh, so Jonathan is, is, is very humble, but the, the structure of go get contracts, think about deployments, think about architecture, um, offer benefit to providers, think about strategy, that's all still there. Um, but they were paying more than market, I'll just say. So, um, and, you know, there was things that a network person would point out that, which is like, hey, you know, some provider in Latin America wants to charge us $10,000 per megabit per second, but we're deployed in these universities. Why don't we, and these universities are 10 to 1 inbound to outbound. Let's buy their unused outbound bandwidth, right? It's a network architecture evolution was what that group contributed and some of the business side. And then Jonathan, even Tim Weller, who's now CEO of Datto, he was the CFO. We all partnered together. So it's not like Jonathan stopped working on it. But some of the more networky stuff we took over and network architecture moved out of uh, engineering and into this combo, combo group. But the beautiful thing, because Akamai is, has, was at the time in some sense the world's largest non-network, is the network people don't get paged. If, the, if something goes down, it's a software problem. Um, you know, sort of the design of Akamai was that the network people could get to do networky things, but um, not get paged. So I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So let's, let's fast forward to... Cantic, um, let's start with the basics. What's your kind of quick elevator pitch for the, for the startup? Uh, sure, yeah. We're the network observability platform that the people who build the internet uh, and the people that use it use to um, see, plan, run, and fix their infrastructure. So we take live streaming, uh, telemetry and data, traffic, routing, um, from all the different kinds of network elements and all the different kinds of networks, the ones that you build and the like things like cloud and SaaS and things that you don't own. And then it's a SaaS platform. We do run it on-prem sometimes for people if that's how they you know need to have it in their network, but it's a managed big data platform. And then there's all sorts of actions people take. So we have a UI, we have an API, we just announced a partnership with New Relic today. We have a firehose so we can send things into data lakes and other observability tools. And then we link to automation. Um, today, that's largely DDoS, load balancers, CDNs, things like that. Like, what kind of action do people want to take around it? And so we sell to networking professionals generally in the service provider world sometimes, or cloud world. That could be a, a that could actually be a uh, product person making an analytics portal or an SD-WAN or SASE analytics portal um, or DDoS service. Um, and sometimes we actually have salespeople that log into Kentic to say, hey, I'm not getting paid for this traffic that goes to that peer. Maybe I should sell to their customers. Um, and then network engineers, architects, operations. So, so we're six years old. We have a few hundred customers, um, uh, probably seven of the 10 biggest uh, data center providers, um, half the biggest uh, cloud providers, five of seven or eight of the biggest CDN providers, um, and then a whole bunch of traditional enterprise. So you think about it in an Equinix-type ecosystem or QTS or, um, you know, or Data Foundry or anyone that you want to list um, uh, uh, on, the, on the data center list, the people that are there to sell services, there are customers, the data centers themselves, and then the enterprises that are there because of all the connectivity and services we sell to them too. Mm -hmm. And um, how did the idea behind it come about? It wasn't Cantic at the start, right? Cloud Helix? No, we called it Cloud Helix, yeah. And mm -hmm. the original idea was, so I left Akamai. I spent eight years failing as a product marketer trying to convince them to get into cloud infrastructure, create or get into cloud infrastructure. To, to, um, to convince Akamai to get into yes. cloud infrastructure, yes. which they're doing now. Uh... Sort of. Sort of. Well, what's even more embarrassing was what we were calling it, what Jonathan Seelig and I were calling it, was native edge computing, which is a thing now. When was this? This was, um, I mean, 2000. I mean, 2001, okay. 2002. We did in the network group, we actually were, you know, basically when Danny Lewin was alive, it was like an Israeli company. So you couldn't get fired by taking initiative. So I was just like, you know what? FedEx, 
Mercury Interactive, you want some servers? Awesome. I have some servers. You know, you want to order it? We'll give you a global network. So we were doing that kind of thing. We called it platform sharing program. And we said, you know, let's do this. VMware was expensive. I said, let's use user mode Linux. I mean, let's do this kind of stuff. But at the time, I was less sophisticated at explaining sort of some of the business outcome. And it seems sort of obvious to me. Uh, but it was going to be very CapEx intensive. Remember, I'm this ISP guy that comes in and it's like, oh, obviously saying we should do ISP. Uh, but I could have done a better job at sort of explaining and corralling. Um, and it is lower margin than where Akamai, you know, came from. Um, and uh, But if you look at what built Akamai, it's all these services. Each one of them is a super version of something like an Amazon service. It's just not the direction Amazon, uh, that Akamai wanted to go. But they are a player in, obviously, content delivery and edge computing and services in, in security and connecting people. So, you know, obviously still a, a major player there. So I left Akamai. Uh, and was doing a few things. I had a Usenet company, if people know what that is. That's you know collaboration infrastructure, uh, very big data nowadays. I was CTO of a cloud company called Server Central, where we did some very high-performance bare metal cloud. But I also started building network sensors for some federal folks that I had worked with when I was at Akamai. And everyone that bought these sensors said, what do we do with all this traffic? I mean, it's 10 gig, 40 gig, 100 gig. I can't put it in Hadoop. Arbor and all these, you know, NetScout, these appliances. I can't monitor all the from, packets. Sorry, traffic from the sensors. Yeah, traffic the from the data sensors. So network, from the sensors. network traffic, packets, mm -hmm. wire data. And they said, how do we actually run a modern network, right? If it's an appliance, we can't see, you know, the cloud. We can't put packet copies everywhere. And even if we could, I mean, all this data from NetFlow, you know, BGP routing, it's all too much. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting problem. So I was running a Usenet company, and I, and I had petabytes of servers. I was in Equinix. I had 100 gigabits of traffic. And I thought, oh, well, I could see if I could solve this problem for myself. So I did that, showed it to people, and said, you know, hey, would you, would you send me your traffic so I could – I assume people would want it in their network. And everyone's like, no, 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 I want a cloud, cloud thing. Yes, we want this. You know, we're tired of Arbor. We want this. Go make that. And then I had a decision to make, which is do I bootstrap? Right? I had a profitable, you know, sort of Usenet company going. Um, do I do it in that or, or wow, this looks like a real problem. The last innovation was in the early 2000s in network analytics. Um, and that's why I decided to move out to the Bay Area, get into the venture ecosystem. This is the Kentic is was which was originally called Cloud Helix. I actually applied to Y Combinator. You were talking about um, uh, the show Silicon Valley and I was living that uh, like we had just raised our seed round. When the first when the um, uh, the first season ended, and the guy that led our seed round was actually one of the people that was in the last episode, it was all very <laughs> surreal. Um, yeah, and you know, I just thought it was a big market. There are all these operational things that are separate, all these silos of data analytics, all these you know, um, you know, all these uh, all these telemetry silos, network silos, and it's time to bring it all together. So that was that was the goal with Kentic, and you know, that's what we're doing now. And there are others. Who are your main competitors? There's Thousand Eyes that Cisco recently bought. I think they do a similar mm -hmm. thing. Um, talk about kind of the the market uh, that you. So if you look with. at our historic competitors, there have really been. When we started, there were two. It was DIY, so people trying to build their own, or Arbor Networks, which is owned by Netscout, looked at the traffic and understood also the internet side. Didn't know about cloud. And it did roll-ups only. So nowadays we talk about observability, and it basically threw away all the data and gave you some canned reports. Um, and so that was what we started replacing around the Internet Edge side. Um, then we started get, um, um, seeing Thousand Eyes, but a little bit more complementary because we didn't do network testing when we started, and Thousand Eyes doesn't know what your network actually is or what it's doing. It looks at you know sort of tests. Uh, so it's trace route, it's it's paying its HTTP tests. But when you get an alert from a pure, um, they call it DEM, digital experience monitoring system, you don't know whether there's actually any traffic on that path. Um, so you need to put it together. And that's what we're doing now. Um, and along the way, we picked up Riverbed, NetScout, some of the appliance-based guy, um, guys and gals, you know, the vendors as competitors. And now we're actually seeing sort of partnership and, um, you know, in some sense, competition with some of the um, 
you know, observability players who they come down to inside the computer. Um, but if you look at them, they don't go beyond the Ethernet. So mm -hmm. coming from the network infrastructure world, our customers are saying, well, that's nice. I do need to see inside the Kubernetes cluster, but I also need to see the switches and routers and SD-WAN and Internet and all those things. So, um, yeah, but we but we started off um, and we saw Thousand Eyes a lot because they were Internet monitoring. We were doing a lot of Internet monitoring as we've broadened. Um, yeah, we still see them. Um, it was awesome they were bought by Cisco because now they're one of 17 monitoring products that Cisco has, none of which work together. Um, so, you know, they've got StealthWatch, StealthWatch Cloud, Tetration, they resell Arbor, they've got Apti, DNA Center, um, uh, I'm forgetting, and Thousand Eyes. They, they got a bunch. Uh, Prime, don't forget Prime. Uh, they got a lot of them, so, yeah. Have you seen a, a lift in business from the pandemic? People are worried about the network health yeah, more. You know, the network people are really realizing it's critical. And a lot of things have um, really surprised me about how this year went. And business has been going great. Um, you know, we've moved from all of a sudden we can't see people. But we had a big enough brand and a big enough customers. And people are still changing jobs and saying, OK, I need Kentec. Um that, uh, you know, business has been going well. What's really interesting is some of the people that I thought in the beginning of the year things would have even accelerated with have been great. But, you know, I still see some web companies that are still saying, we don't know what's going on. Although, um, you know, a lot of people are really firming up their 2021 plans and saying, yeah, things actually look pretty good. But what's really surprising is all of our travel customers are renewing or expanding. Um, mm. and, uh, so they're really bullish too, which makes me travel happy. Yeah. Travel customers like airlines or, uh, yeah, mean? like airlines, airline booking companies, transportation companies. Mm. Um, they're all, you know, some of them have adopted uh, food delivery. Um, some of them are, you know, getting into, um, you know, sort of longer term vacation stuff. They've all found a way to adapt their business. And for us, um, where we started, we came from service provider cloud, some of the digital companies that were very, the people like like CDNs that invented orchestration that, that everyone's trying to get towards. Kentic was built for that, right? Feed us a constant stream of all your DHCP, your DNS, your IPAM, your OSS, BSS, and we'll put it together with all your telemetry and then learn and show you what you need to do. We were built in that world and our first adopters were customers that couldn't use appliances because like, well, I don't want to ask about an IP address. I'm, you know, before Kubernetes, I'm deploying applications. All I care about is, is this application and that user having a problem? And so we, we were built to be able to do that. Now we're seeing traditional enterprise. That's the thing which has really accelerated for us this year. Hedge funds, e-commerce, retail. We had all these as customers, but a lot of them are now saying whether it's the SASE, you know, the edge at the people's homes, if that doesn't work, our business doesn't go or just the Internet retail, you know, sort of e-commerce like their company's revenue is flowing over the Internet. And people really realize that now if the stores are aren't shut and your business keeps going. Well, obviously, that's all supported by the network. So there's definitely some application people like, oh, it's all APIs. There is no network anymore. But um, what we're seeing is um, both the lines of business and the IT shops in traditional enterprise are real are are looking for more modern solutions that are the equivalent of what they've been buying with Datadog and New Relic and, you know, Dynatrace and the observability side, you know, for the DevOps group. So it's like, why can't network people have nice things too? That, that's what Kentec's about. Right. So it's not like just dis dismissing all the complexity because it's been abstracted. Uh, they do want visibility into the infrastructure, yeah. the lower infrastructure. They just, you know, need it presented maybe in a... In a nice someone way. needs to figure out underlay overlay when when yeah. something doesn't work and it's not the application someone needs to figure it out who are you going to call right. you know network people yeah so and and your first customers were some big big names zoom yelp dropbox um other customers you have uber i believe horizon media um yeah and we have one thing sorry go ahead uh, no, we've been we were honored really early with some critical players in digital and economic infrastructure uh, becoming customers. And our first trial customer was Cogent, who sent us all their backbone data. So we sort of, 
you know, cut our teeth on the largest scale um, and prove that we could do it. So that that really helped. And obviously, our networking world contacts helped gain people's trust. And and you did an interview recently, and you mentioned an interesting thing that, you know, so these customers that we just mentioned, they have, they operate these scale networks, um, especially like Dropbox or Verizon mm -hmm. and Zoom. Um, now you said now traditional enterprises are realizing they need to operate like these international infrastructure companies. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? Um, what are they? Why do enterprises need to do that now? Well, again, it's something COVID has made people really realize, right? Uh, servers are cattle, not pets. So are network elements, right? If if you don't want to log into, you know, Cat Three because you think that it's got this weird issue, but you know, uh, you know, you go and reset the Ethernet every so often, and it's happy. Like in a COVID world, that doesn't really work. Um, uh, it's harder to travel. The, all the automation initiatives have really picked up, and the other thing we've seen is just an acceleration of the cloud. Um, so I don't want to say everyone's turning off all their infrastructure, but they're definitely more cloud dependent, more SaaS dependent. And so the traditional enterprise are struggling with some of these traditional appliances or Windows software that feel like playing 8-bit video games if you use them, you know, which are the traditional network world that, we, that we've all used this stuff in the past and saying, okay, well, what are the people that were cloud native, that, that grew up in the digital, where there was no sneaker net, what are they doing? And, and let's think about that. But they also have initiatives, app modernization, cloud migration, observability, you know, streaming data buses of telemetry. And uh, it's, you know, when they go out and look and say, okay, what do I need to do? They need to have more modern solutions. And they have that on the application side. And so that's why we've seen a lot of these people and also word of mouth, you know, you get to scale, you get one hedge fund, they talk to other people, you get five more, same thing with retail, same thing with a lot of the streaming companies, you know, uh, things like that. So um, we're going to be doing a lot more education around telemetry, um, uh, data platforms, uh, you know, just generally network observability. And, you know, uh, we think that'll help a lot of people and maybe that'll help people get into the industry, which is a big problem for us, which is a whole separate conversation, the aging of, of you know, sort of network folks and, and lack of diversity. Um, but we also think it'll, it'll track people that are studying these things to us. And I think there's a lot of burnout from vendors saying we now have self-driving networks or closed loop automation but that that really is if you look at the presentation it's write it in python instead of logging in in cli we're sort of not at the magic land so we try to be in the middle saying like here's really where we are and here's what you can do next year right now you can mm -hmm. automate your device and interface turn up you know next your routing next whatever and so that's another way we engage is trying to find practitioners and you know, sort of help show them what we're seeing across our customer base. Mm -hmm. And so the internet survived the pandemic, as we've talked about several times. Um, yeah. As a former internet plumber, um, what were your biggest fears about connectivity when the crisis started? Did you have any, or, or did you think it's fine? It's built to handle all this. Yeah, there were a few things I was concerned about. One was how much people had really overbuilt. Um, you know, I thought it might only be 10%. It turned out it was more like 25 to 40%. <coughs> Excuse me. So people overbuilt, um, and that was good. And it was, they overbuilt by more than I was concerned, you know, they, they, they might. Yeah, they had more bandwidth in their... Yeah, they had more bandwidth, you know, available. Um, another thing that I was concerned about, which is a concern that people are watching, is um, supply chain. Because... Our DR modeling, our scenario modeling, sort of assumed, I mean, from back from when I did it, but our customers say the same thing, sort of assumes either something happens in one geo, and then it's better, or maybe not, or something happens worldwide, and then it's better, but not this patchwork up, down, up, down, and with these interconnected supply chains, you know, will you get your optics? Will you get your line cards? Will you get your routers and switches? So supply chains have definitely gone up this year, but not as much as feared. But a lot of our customers are now using more Kentic for capacity planning to, to know further in advance, order further in advance. 
Um, and the third thing was I wasn't really worried about large-scale sustained outages, but it would have been a good opportunity for people to up the infrastructure attacks. Now, I think the reason we haven't seen this is because the criminals make money over the infrastructure. So that you, you could take the infrastructure down while it's being more vulnerable with all this activity. But I, I just think the incentive's not been there as the whole world moves digital, so do the criminals. Um, and from our perspective, all of our performance data, what I've said is there's been some vendors um, that have made a lot of noise. Uh, Thousand Eyes is one of them about, oh, there's all these outages with COVID. My, yeah. my, the way I explain it is if you just take the internet growth and speed it up by 30%, you got 30% more micro outages. That's what happens. Sometimes you plug in a thing and something happens. There's little things, but really the internet has worked marvelously well, um, you know, through this. And I've been very happy as an internet plumber, as a former like internet a lot of plumber. The... Um, so a, a lot of the outages that Thousand Eyes uh, were tracking and they showed these spikes, these were kind of minor outages deep in the network um, that didn't really materialize for the users. Yeah, I would say they're localized. I mean, again, our customers are Zoom. We have other video conferencing customers. We have five gaming customers. We have 10 ad tech customers. You know, when I look across them, were there problems in some providers, some places? Was there a, you know, CenturyLink um, you know, uh, big problem. Yes, there. Every year, there's two or three big problems. But when I look at the sort of micro outages um, that happens when you turn up capacity, all that, that's the kind of thing that we're seeing. You know, localized to a region, a network, a network region, and overall, the internet's been performing pretty well. We actually will be launching next month. Um, um, we've started doing continuous monitoring, right? Because your traffic on your network is continuous, so should your measurement. So we're doing every second monitoring. You know, it's because we have a lot of service providers, they use this thing called uh, TWAMP. It's actually spelled T-W-A-M-P, but people don't want to pronounce it the way you would. So they say TWAMP, yeah. two-way active measurement protocol. And, you know, service providers are used to doing one to 10 or 20 packets a second. And we've brought that into the enterprise world to say, let's just do continuous testing. And you know what? You do see a lot of micro outages, and it's sometimes it's worth routing around them. But again, when you look in the aggregate, um, things are working uh, pretty well, uh, you know, generally. So let's switch gears here a little bit. When your um, your PR person reached out to me <laughs> recently, they pitched a conversation with Avi Friedman about his three big trends to watch. Um, and I do want to talk about them because they are they are pretty interesting, um, and some of them are a bit confusing to me, at least the explanation. So hopefully you can clarify. Sure. Um, so the first one is edification of everything, thanks to 5G. Um, now, where I'm a little bit confused here is the connection with five between 5G and edge computing. I don't know how um, the. I think been... that might have been. Sorry. We're doing carrier, we're doing carrier, we're doing CSMA CD carrier sense multiple access collision detect now. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know so how there's, the five. There's been investment in, in edge computing. You cited investments in edge compute infrastructure mm -hmm. by enterprises and telcos. Now, our Omdia analysts, uh, they what they've seen is edge compute investment is happening, but it's happening with or without five G. Five um, G is just a transmission technology at the end, and telcos are investing primarily for caching and to virtualize their networks into investing into the edge compute infrastructure. Enterprise are investing in industrial IoT, but also it's like smart retail, et cetera. Um, so what are you seeing? How do you connect 5G and edge compute? And, and why, why is this a big, a big trend in your opinion for 2021? So I think edification is a, uh, is a big trend going on right now. And I think 5G is a part of that, so uh, I think maybe uh, we might have um, uh, elevated 5G a little bit in the translation of sort of what I see a lot of activity on on both the enterprise and service provider side for next year. Um, as I said earlier, I think people are realizing that the biggest distributed edge uh, is actually, well, your house, my house. Um, it's where everybody actually is now. Uh, when 
COVID is over, thankfully, hopefully soon, 5G will you know be a part of that, but I would just say wireless. What is unique about 5G is the 5G infrastructure itself is being built and deployed cloud native, which makes it even easier to justify putting the kind of architecture, the edge compute and delivery architecture, so that people can run the applications. Now, I would say 2020 was a lot of prep for that. Um, there's a lot of how do we get the right, you know, open RAN architecture? How do we do what, whether it's Geo or Rakuten, you know, when you're looking at some of the things that people are doing that are next gen, um, and how do we prep to have footprint, whether it's towers or other kinds of data centers? But the applications that we track for our across our customers that are actually delivered true edge, I mean, it's not one percent. Now, you could argue CDNs are edge. That's 90%. You know, if you think about magic packet transporters, but I'm talking about like delivered right next to the to the cell or to the user. That's still, you know, really early. But I think carriers committing to a cloud native architecture, enterprises being all about cloud transformation is um, going to make some of the edge promise a little bit more real. So maybe I wouldn't describe it as edge and 5G in 2021, but you know, the, the 5G is definitely a contributor, and I think we're going to start to see, not quite at the hype level, so we'll still be behind, you know, the great promise, but I think we are going to start to see some of these cloud-native functions uh, go. It won't be exactly like, you know, VNFs and service chaining and all that, but some things that are deployable. Now, we still, as an industry and application, have a lot of education to do about how you actually take advantage of the network, how you build these applications. Um, a lot of these applications really require state. And so you sort of need a micro cloud architecture. It's not just, you know, a proxy that you need. Um, and you can see that innovation on the CDN side. So um, what I would say is I think we're going to go from almost all hype to first instantiation in 2021. And that'll be really interesting to see, um, you know, which, which areas race ahead of which. I see. And the second trend uh, was the rise of the internet bypass. Um, and you mentioned in the kind of brief description, um, it's been around, it's not a new concept. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of serving content locally instead of over long distance over, um, over the internet. Um, media companies have been investing in local caching, like digital mm -hmm. media companies, Netflix, etc. Yeah. Um, CDNs have, la have launched edge compute platforms which you brought up, um, they're, they seem to be primarily pushing serverless for developers. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah. uh, a, a pr it seems like something they, they see as promising, uh, where they can uh, offer some, some value that maybe AWS cannot. Um, so explain the, this, you know, new generation internet bypass, if you will, from your perspective. Sure. So what's really interesting when we look at our service provider customers, to um, a lot of what they're interested in is OTT, right? Because as I described, Akamai and the other CDNs are magic packet transporters. If you're used to networking and you say, oh, I advertise a route, and then based on that, people send me traffic. And if I don't want the traffic there, I move the route there and the traffic comes that way. Well, that's not really how CDNs work. They sort of use the principle that you can control your outbound arbitrarily. Um, and what we've seen for you know, a decade now is, um, you know, when I look at my service provider customers for most of the eyeball networks, less than 10% of their traffic, or I would say more than 90% of their traffic comes from overlay networks, right? Non-single AS-based content uh, networks. So everyone knows Netflix, but there's a whole bunch of others. And it used to be you had to go hire a whole bunch of people like Akamai did uh, and then the other CDNs to do this kind of edge architecture. But Netflix, Google, Facebook were three of the first that uh, did sort of the same thing. Um, in fact, Netflix took a really elegant solution because they put some of the CDN mapping in the player, um, which simplified, you know, uh, actually getting going um, and, uh, you know, building to pretty big scale. Um, and now we are seeing 
a growth in that, right? It's it's interesting to think. Is it possible that less than five percent of the, um, you know, of the traffic to, you know, a, a service provider like Comcast might come from, you know, traditional sort of from the cloud or from web server sitting somewhere or from, uh, you know, uh, an, an end video conferencing. But we might we might uh, we might actually get there. And so the reason I call that internet bypass is it's the backbone bypass. You know, you're basically trying to serve around the bottlenecks, which are generally between networks, because between networks is where politics and cost comes in. It's generally cheaper inside networks. So there's much more capacity. Um, One interesting thing, since I collaborated with the PR agency and we, we talked about what might be happening next year, is did you see the Disney announcement with Quilt and is it called the Open Content Alliance? Um, no, I haven't seen it. But um, so, you know, Disney's a big player, obviously. They've got a lot of traffic and they've partnered in a lot of areas of the world with Quilt, which has done caching, um, but in an open way. So whereas Netflix, Akamai, um, uh, you know, Fastly, um, Facebook, when you get the, ca- the, the caches from these servers, and they could be active, they could be running applications, it only serves that one provider. So there's been multiple attempts before to have sort of boxes that can be deployed deeper in network um, that could serve multiple kinds of content, but respect the policy that the service provider wants. And so there's some innovation there, too, which I'll be interested to see, you know, how it goes. But it seems to be helping Disney um, uh, and, you know, some service providers both. So. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that goes. But this trend towards, you know, people think of the Internet as all these providers connecting to each other, and that's how all the traffic flows. That's actually, by traffic volume, uh, not actually been what actually happens um, from the service provider viewpoint. Um, and I think that's going to accelerate, and there are some new models that are coming into play that are consistent with this push to the edge. So I think it'll be exciting to see what happens with that next year. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious about your thoughts on this trend of CDNs getting into serverless computing. Um, the mm-hmm. way I see it, they have the, or per- at least perceive this as a natural advantage where they have already invested in this infrastructure that's close to end users, close to as many end users as possible, the eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the hyperscalers haven't built infrastructure quite that distributed. And so, what they're, what the CDNs are, are seeing as an opportunity here is to to offer these serverless um, services, serverless services like Edge Cloud, but only serverless to the to developers. So, what are your thoughts on that? Is that a promising area? Yeah, no. Look, I definitely think it is. Um, I was an advocate for it 20, 20 years ago, um, before even serverless. I first before I have to before I answer, I've actually really um amused last week i think was aws um the year before when reinvent was in person um and they announced outpost i took a bunch of pictures of myself standing you know with my hand on an outpost and then i bubbled you know serverless pointing to the to the rack of servers which you can deploy (laughs) to run serverless so um i know that lambda functions and yeah exactly ignore the servers here there's no service it's all serverless it's still cracks me up but um yeah i think that it's promising but early days i'll give you an example we went to cloudflare and fastly and said awesome you have all this deployment um we're deploying synthetic we have you know hundreds of agents we're going to be growing to really uh, we actually call our project internally regionally called it project trillionize uh you know because like there's more than a thousand networks you clearly need to be in more than a thousand places a thousand is a very small you know we have trillions of data points per day that come into kentic and um you know like we want the maximum edge ultimately down at the you know in the sort of the individual edge which you know in the covid world we've seen is really important um but for example today i couldn't with any of the edge services today actually say run it there so you're still subject to sort of the CDN architecture of try to run it in some general place. But for Kentech, we need to know it was this network. You know, we need to be able to say we need to measure from this network and this geography. So it's very early. It is edge. I think what will be interesting is how deep do they go into storage? 
because this is something we saw at Akamai. Like if you can't store a session state, then there's a limit to how much you can do. Now, some of them like Cloudflare might apply their overlay technology to re persistent reach back into the cloud services, but I still haven't seen from any of the uh, any of the sort of serverless side uh, CDN marriage. What is that architecture of, you know, are they going to be building all the storage stuff? I know Cloudflare just announced um, persistent objects of some sort, but there's a lot still to be done. Um, and yeah, you can generate shipping labels. There's some things you can do with sort of stateless edge computing um, and, you know, distribution, lower latency. There's a lot of areas that that has advantages, but ultimately developers still need a lot more principles, a lot more, you know, foundational um, components than are there now. So it'll be, again, interesting to see how that goes. Actually, you mentioned Jonathan Selig. Um, he's actually doing a distributed native edge computing, which to me is actually much more interesting because then I can run whatever I want. Um, it's containers in that case, but with persistent storage. Uh, it's a company called Ridge. Um, and he's doing it by partnering with data centers to use their compute resources and then build a federation. So it's sort of like what Quilt is doing on the caching side, but on the uh, on the compute side. And I wonder whether we'll see some of the CDNs do that. Um, you know, Limelight actually uh, used to do that. I used to buy transit from them. They used to sell bare metal. So, uh, you know, IBM, who's one of our large customers, you know, that was one thing SoftLayer did. So I think the CDN, bare metal, serverless, um, I, I expect to sort of either see the CDNs add more cloud services or sort of add a distributed persistent container or bare metal um, to support a wider range of these applications that people want to run. I see. So kind of flesh it out beyond kind of the basic. Yeah, it needs to go in one direction or the other. They have right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you, you, you do need, ultimately serverless is cool, but forward deploying serverless, there's a limit to what you can do without some sort of storage data queuing all the other things that you know the centralized cloud it's hard it's funny to call aws centralized with dozens of locations but the less <sighs> distributed clouds uh do yeah and the final trend was the convergence of netops devops and secops um i don't know enough in this area to introduce this part any further <laughs> so what do you mean here by convergence between so, the three there's three distinct cultures that we see in and around sort of Kentic and who we work with. And in the nineties, when I grew up, there was just nerd, right? You were a nerd. You played with systems. You wrote some software. You, you know, were interested in the network and you were an admin. You were, you know, a hacker. You were whatever. But from the nineties, there was this specialization. So I'm a security person, I'm a storage person, I'm a network person, I'm a application, you know, operations person, I'm an I'm a developer. And you've got at least three cultures which we interact with. You've got sort of the core networking, and there are subcultures there, but network ops, right? And that could be planning, monitoring, fixing, automating, you know, but you take a network infrastructure view of the world and then oh, VXLAN, it's just you know, ex you you either think of it as a tunnel or as an extra tag. Whichever way you think of it, you sort of have a model. Like cloud, oh, it's just other people's tunnels and stuff. I mean, and you could put it together. So that's the way you look at the world. You've got the application operations view of the world. So sort of the system in that went up into the application is like, well, there's APIs for the network. Um, and, you know... If it's not my problem, it's their problem, but I don't really need to see that historically. Or I, or they feel like they're not empowered. They don't really understand it. And then you've got security groups um, who also operate but have a different mentality, different language. And in a cloud-native world um, where the network person needs to look at the server because it's a virtual MX or it's a, uh, a, a networking plane on a containerized system the you know the application operator needs to look because it might be their company's infrastructure cloud infrastructure or an internet problem and the security people like what are these crazy utes doing turning stuff up and down how can we possibly 
whatever, if they don't know what your Kubernetes and your other systems are doing, they might think it's an attack and shut it down. And then the operations people don't know that they just did that. So in theory, you would think the world would be ready. The same tools get used for all three of those things. And that's not been the way that it's worked because of different language, different cultures, different things that people look for. So I think that in 2021, we're going to see an acceleration, but not the nirvana of these three groups coming together more. We're seeing it with um, with the operations side. We're seeing that, um, as I said, we just announced a partnership with New Relic today uh, where we can stream the network data into their telemetry data platform, and we're building an app for it so that application owners can sort of see where is this application sitting and who should I talk to if there's an infrastructure problem. It's something we focus a lot of product energy on is how do you make it usable for people that don't know what networks are to understand network problems? And we're seeing security people also. Now, there's a lot of people that say, oh, network observability, network monitoring, that's not a security thing. Um, but um, we're seeing that as infrastructure is getting more dynamic and applications are, a lot of security people are saying, oh, we really do need to know that or we're going to waste all this time you know, sort of separately. So I would say three years ago, we probably had 5% of our customers had, I'll, I'll call it DevOps observability folks using uh, Kentic. Now it's probably 25%, and I think it's going to go higher next year, especially we've built libraries you know, for not just API, but libraries about how to pull data in and out. On the security side, it was probably started about, started higher because of our DDoS work, but, um, you know, that's also, um, that's also growing and still less than 50%. Um, but I think it's going to increase next year. Um, and I also think education, uh, you know, is something that all three groups need to work on um, because we're not really going to be happy until all these groups speak same language and understand each other's um, problems uh, better than we do today. Um, but it's trending in the positive direction, which I view as very, very promising. It's trending in the positive direction for the industry and for Kentic. Uh Yes, for both. Um, we're very excited. We're doing a lot of hiring. If you're looking for a job, please go to our careers page. If you are a pure network architect, um, we don't really run big, massive infrastructure, but we have hundreds and hundreds of customers, and I'll be happy to uh, point you into our customer base if you're just generally in the networking world. And if you're early on, we really need to encourage early folks and, um, you know, would love to hear from people passionate about networking and wanting to learn. Um, we're going to try to uh, do more education around that, too. Uh, but, yeah, for the industry, too, I think there's been a lot of visibility uh, of the importance of networking and networkers, um, and there's going to be continued move to really complex hybrid infrastructure and everyone wanting to move faster, um, which is going to be exciting, you know, for the industry. In many ways, it's like being an ISP in the 90s. You just sort of wake up and there's this new idea and now everyone needs to react. I love it. It's uh, exciting. Avi, thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you for your time. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I always enjoy it. Um, look forward to next time.